for using your gifts to point us towards the Lord. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you please open up to the book of 1 John? And we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3 today. If you're new with us, and especially if you're new to the Bible, I'll give you a couple of tips to find this. Um, uh, don't be afraid, first of all, to use your table of contents. 1 John is, uh, I'm not trying to be silly here, but it's the one with the number one in front of it on your table of contents. That's 1 John, and you'll see right after that, 2 John and 3 John. So 1 John chapter 3 is uh, where we're going to spend our time studying today. Have you ever had a situation, an element that you thought was unique to you, only later to find out, no, this is a pretty common deal. I'm not really alone in this. There's any number of situations we could point to where that has been true in our lives. Uh, And in the spiritual life, in the Christian life, there is a common element that so many of us feel like we struggle with alone, but it is terribly, sadly common. And that issue is the assurance of our salvation. All too often it happens that Christians feel like we have exhausted God's grace. And so we might ask ourselves questions like, am I still saved? Am I really saved? Was I ever really saved to begin with? And with that comes this crippling doubt and fear that makes us feel like God is against us and we are strangers to Him. But this is not an uncommon way of thinking. And that's the sad thing about it. The good news is that there's a solution to this. God does not intend that his children would live in perpetual fear and doubt about their standing with him or his posture towards us. And he gives us this passage in 1 John chapter 3 to settle the issue of our doubts once and for all. It seems that this is a situation that's common not only to the present church, but also to the historic church, because it shows up in this letter to this church that's reeling from all kinds of hurt. You know the background and the story because you've been with us these past few weeks as we've been through 1 John. There's a church split. Uh, The group that left also rejected Jesus. They chased after some errant theology thinking that they could have salvation without Jesus. And for some reason that John doesn't fully articulate in his letter, one of the, uh, one of the effects of that, church, of that part of the church leaving is that those who remained questioned their position with God. They wondered, are we really his children? Is Jesus really the way to the Father? Uh, do we really belong to him? And so here in the middle of this letter, when he's addressing all kinds of issues, he stops and focuses intently on this specific issue, the issue of assurance. And it just astounds me that of all the things John could talk about, of all the topics he could address in this letter to his hurting church, he focuses on the issue of assurance. That tells me this is an important matter an important matter for Christians of all ages, for everyone who reads John's letter. And so my goal today is to eradicate any doubt you may carry about your place with God or His posture towards you. And in our passage today, I'm going to show you four sources of a Christian's assurance of salvation. So I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 18. John writes this, 
Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before Him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and He knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from Him because we keep His commands and do what is pleasing in His sight. Now this is His command, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commands remains in Him and He in Him. And the way we know that He remains in us is from the Spirit He has given us. This is a notoriously challenging passage to either preach or study. Some of the language is a bit confusing. Some of the translation is quite challenging, in fact. And so I want to show you real quick why it is that I'm structuring our time in this passage around the issue of assurance. You may, if you do Bible study or listen to someone else preach on this passage, they may go a different direction, and that's okay. Uh, But here's why I think the right focus for us is the issue of assurance. So in this passage, John makes four different references to the assurance of salvation. The first is in verse 19. If you want to look at it with me real quick, in verse 19 is this line. He says, this is how we will know we belong to the truth. So there's our reference to assurance. He wants to assure our hearts. Second is in verse 21. He says we have confidence before God. Third is in the beginning of verse 24. He says the one who keeps his commands remains in him. And then the last reference is also towards the end of verse 24. He says we know that he remains in us. So four different times in a very short time span, he hits this same note repeatedly, the note of assurance. This is how we will know we belong to the truth. This is how we can have confidence. This is how we know he remains in us and we remain in him. John wants us to walk away from this passage without any doubt as to the Father's love and grace towards us and with great confidence in what he's done for us in Christ. So what are these four sources of a Christian's assurance of salvation? The first source of that assurance is this. It's living by God's grace. When I live in line with God's word according to God's grace, I find in that a source of assurance of my belonging with God. Verse 18 is a unique sentence. It's the start of our passage uh, for our study today. And it was the last verse at the end of our study last week. It's a hinge verse. It, It serves both as the end of a paragraph and the start of a new paragraph. Uh, And so in terms of being the end of a paragraph, it refers back to everything that was before it. And you might remember last week as we talked about what love looks like, verse 18 was the culminating statement about love. Let us then love one another in action and in truth. In terms of the start of a paragraph, in reference to what we're studying this morning, it points to assurance. Let us love in action and in truth. By this way, we will know that we belong to the truth. So loving each other in this way, in action and truth, with that self-sacrificial, joyful generosity that we've experienced from Christ, that kind of love comes from a heart that belongs to the Father. Uh, 
And that sounds relatively easy enough, perhaps, but there's a problem. John identifies the problem for us in verse 20. He says, whenever our hearts condemn us. Man, there's the big issue. Whenever our hearts condemn us. What is John talking about when he talks about our hearts condemning us? Uh, Some people will translate that just for the sake of understanding. They'll translate it as our conscience. There's an argument to be made uh, for that, but I'm not sure that's the best translation. I'm just going to refer to heart this morning because I think what John's referring to is that, that inner, wicked, accusing voice that does not die easily. It often brings up our failures, our shortcomings. It's the voice that tries to convince us that we don't belong to the truth. It's the voice in us that casts doubt as to our standing with the Lord. And so here John shows such an incredible understanding and keen insight into our own inner turmoil. We're told by God to love each other in action and truth, but our hearts say different. Our hearts may try to convince us not to love. Our hearts may argue that it's risky to be generous to others, that we're asking to be hurt, or or even our hearts may condemn us by pointing out how often we don't love in this way and how often we neglect those in need. In these instances, our hearts are our accusers. On the one hand, our heart convinces us to sin, And then, on the other hand, our heart condemns us for the sin that it's convinced us to do. Christian, do you know what that voice is like? Do you know what it's like to be ripped apart by that inner turmoil? To to be lured into sin and then to self-condemn because of the failures you've made once again. Maybe you define yourself by your failures and struggles and fail to believe that God could really love you. And so your heart condemns you. Maybe you have messed up. And in the aftermath of that sin, your sinful heart doesn't give you a pep talk. Rather, it continues to destroy you with condemning thoughts. How could you think God loves you after what you've done? You're a failure. You have no future. You have no hope. But John says this in verse 20. Don't miss it. Look at what he says. Look at it with your eyes. God is greater than our hearts. In what ways is God greater than our hearts? He's kinder. He's more compassionate. He's forgiving. He restores. And above all, he has the authority, the voice, and the right to speak a better word than our hearts. So when your heart condemns you, what might God say in response? What would be his defense of you? Just a few weeks ago, we read this incredible poem in 1 John chapter 2. Feel free to go back and look at it anytime you want, but here's what God says about you. Your heart condemns you, and God said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, your sins have been forgiven. Your heart condemns you, and God says in verse 13, you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. Your heart condemns you, and God says in verse 14, you are strong, and my word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. God does not take marching orders from your heart. We live as if our heart has an audience with God, walks in before him and says, let me tell you everything that's wrong with this one. She's a failure. She's weak. He's a mess. He's an embarrassment. And then we think that God says, you know what? Those are some great points. I'm going to 
take those into consideration and withdraw my goodness from my child. That's what we believe happens in the theater of God's throne room. But it's wrong. When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. God himself is your defender. We think we have to defend ourselves to God. God, I'm doing my best. God, I'm sorry. God, I messed up. God, I just need you to love. God's your defender. His grace holds you every day. And in that, we have such sweet assurance from him that even though this inner voice tries to destroy us, we've got a God who speaks a better word, who by his grace holds us as his children. His grace reassures you that you belong to him, and in that assurance, we're able to press forward in love, in action, and in truth. You have to believe the word of God over the word of your heart. Your heart is wrong. God's declaration is eternal. His grace gives us assurance that we belong to him. Not only does grace-based living give us assurance, a second source of our assurance is praying God's will. In verses 21 and 22, John talks about prayer as a source of confidence in our standing with God. And so when our hearts aren't condemning us, he says in verse 21, we have confidence before God. Yeah, that's right. When I'm not destroying myself, I can come before God with confidence. Not arrogance, not arrogance, but with confidence that he'll receive me and he'll hear my prayer and that he's good and he's bent my way. Let me give you an example of of what praying in confidence looks like. Uh, The Super Bowl this year was won by Tom Brady and his Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And after the game, in the the days after the football game, there was this video clip that made the rounds in the media. It it was a clip of Brady after the game. He's on the field. He's talking to cameras. And his kids came running up to him. And Brady uh, turned his attention to his kids. He hugged each of them, kissed them. They started laughing, and they celebrated together. So when his kids ran to him, they did so without hesitation. They did so with full confidence that their dad would receive them. They didn't pause out of fear of being condemned. They didn't pause because they thought uh, that their dad valued the camera more than them. They knew that they were his treasure. They ran to him, and he embraced them. Rejection wasn't even an option. And, and that's what it's like to come before your heavenly father in confidence. Condemnation is not an option. He loves you and he receives you and he gives you whatever you ask in prayer. That's what John's told us here in verse 22. Does he really give us whatever we ask in prayer? I mean, I'm still bald. <laughs> Does he really give us whatever we ask in prayer? Well, The teaching of the Bible is very clear on this point. It's it's that God answers yes to everything prayed within his will. God delights to say yes, delights to answer prayer. When we come to him in prayer, we're not having to convince him to do things that he isn't already bent to do. But he says yes to those things that are within his will. 
And he's good enough, merciful enough, kind enough to us that he says no to the things that we pray that are outside of his will. A common mistake in prayer is thinking that our praying determines God's will. That, that when I come in prayer to God, I am informing him of a situation he did not otherwise know about. And I'm not only telling him about the crisis, I'm also giving him a prescription for how it should be carried out. Now, it's not wrong to make our request known to God. The Bible tells us that. We should do that. We must do that in prayer. But in prayer, we're not forming God's will. Rather, we are being formed to God's will. In the praying moment, God already knows the need. He already knows what you're going to say. He already knows what your prescriptions are. And he already knows what he is doing to set things right in that particular situation. If that's not who he is in prayer, then he's little more than just a cosmic vending machine. We pray our prayer formulas and then he spits out the thing that we want. But we have limited knowledge, limited power, no understanding whatsoever. That would be a horrific way to go through life. But instead, we have a kind, loving, heavenly Father who we can have confidence in when we approach him in prayer. That he will hear us and he will give us what we pray. John's purpose here is to encourage us to enter fully into this child-father relationship with God. It's a relationship in which God delights to hear the prayers and to answer the prayers of his children. And the more fully we enter into that relationship, the more our praying will be in line with his will. That's what saved people do. That's what children of God do. Confident prayer according to the will of God is evidence of a heart that belongs to Jesus. But here's the problem. Oftentimes, we don't pray. Sometimes in spiritual crisis, especially, we fail to pray. We don't have the energy or the desire. So does that mean you should fear for your salvation? No, what, what it means is that you need to remember Romans 8.26. Romans 8.26. Romans 8. 26, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. When we don't know what to pray, which I take also to mean when we don't pray or when we can't pray, God the Holy Spirit prays for us. God the Spirit prays for you in perfect alignment with the will of God the Father. What incredible love the Father has for you. So the confident prayer of the child of God is a constant source of great assurance that we're his child and he's our Father. Sources that give us assurance are the grace of God in our daily lives, confident praying. The third source is this, it's obeying God's will. We're praying God's will, and then here in verses 23 and the start of verse 24, we're obeying God's will. Uh, chapter 3, verse 23 is a verse that we've referenced over and over in our study of 1 John. We finally get to it properly. Uh, it's an important interpretive tool. Verse 23, now this is his command, God's command, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he commanded us. So in the places in John's letter where we've heard God, or where, yeah, we've heard the voice of God telling us to obey 
or, or where there has been criticism for those who don't obey his commands, we always come back here to chapter 3, verse 23 to interpret that, to help us understand what command John is writing about or what command we're struggling with. And the command of God is this, that we would believe in the name of Jesus Christ, his son, and second, that we would love one another as he commanded us. A right relationship with God requires these two pivotal things. One is faith, specifically faith in Jesus Christ. Not just faith in the goodness of the universe or faith in God as, as the world conceives of God in all the many various ways it interprets God. It's faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. There's no other. This is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Jesus Christ is the one in whom we trust for our salvation. And not only do we need this specific faith, but the natural overflow of a heart that's connected to Jesus is to love other people the way He's loved us. A love in action and truth. It's a love that lays down our lives, gives of our material goods for the sake of the person in front of us. So what are we talking about when we talk about faith in Jesus? Well, to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, is to place your trust, your faith in Him and only Him in all that He is. He's the divine Son, the incarnate God. He's God with flesh on. He's 100% God, 100% man. He is the sinless human, the perfect atonement for our sin. He's the Savior for mankind. And when you trust in Him, you trust all of Him, not part. Our whole lives are given to Him. He's not just the one who fixes our religious problem. He's the one that gives life to those who are spiritually dead. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to understand that this is what He has for you. His plan and hope and desire for you is that you would put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. You're a good person. You're a moral person. You may be a very spiritual person. But, but here is where we, we can't get this wrong. We, we can't get Jesus wrong and get salvation right. And he loves you so much. And so he invites you to put your trust in him, to turn from your sin, to turn from all that's broken and dead in you, and turn your whole life to follow him. And this is the day that can happen. It should happen, in fact. So that you don't go another day wondering, who do I belong to? What's God's posture towards me? You can know today that he loves you. He sent his son, Jesus, to die for you. He rose from the dead, and by faith in him, you'll have everlasting life. You may need to have a talk with someone before you leave this place today, with me or one of the other pastors or with someone that you're, a friend that you're here with today that you know loves Jesus. It's most important that your eternity is settled in as soon as possible. So believing on the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, we're, we're putting our whole life on Him, and then to love one another as He commanded, it means we're going to care for each other at the point of our needs. Uh, we're going to share material things with each other. It's a love of action and truth. We're not allowed to claim faith in Jesus and then to hate people. We're not allowed to deny Jesus and then say, oh no, but I love people. These go hand in hand. Faith in Christ and love for people are the essentials of the Christian life. John goes on to tell us in verse 24 that when we live this way, 
When we obey God's will in this way, we remain in God and God remains in us. Your Bible might use the word abide rather than remain. We abide, we dwell, we live in Him, He lives in us. What this means is that when we obey the commands of God, we have more and more assurance that we belong to Him. When we trust in Jesus for our salvation, we never have to doubt His love. It's demonstrated, it's been given. And the only way we can love others is out of our experience of Christ's sacrificial love for us. There's this clear pattern we we see in the Bible, and the pattern is this, it's that when God's people love as Jesus commanded, and God is present with blessing. But when God's people fail to love, God is present with discipline or judgment. And I don't think we fully understand how powerful Christ-like, self-sacrificial love is truly is. Let me give you an example. In struggling marriages, there's always a failure of love. And a failure of love often involves increasing disagreement, increasing distance, fighting to win, very few apologies, very little forgiveness, no humility, no repentance. And that's why some people would describe their marriages as hell, because when love is absent, God isn't in it. However, John tells us that when we love each other, we abide in God and He abides in us. So that means there's hope for every hurting relationship when we love each other as He commanded, because love covers a multitude of sins In that love, we'll humble ourselves and put the needs of the other before our own. In that love, we'll be driven to to repent from our sinful behaviors, our selfish behaviors that have brought dysfunction into the relationship. In that love, we'll chart a new path forward as we follow Jesus Christ, the one in whom we've put our faith and trust. So obeying God's will is a powerful source of assurance for the follower of Jesus So what are the sources that assure us of our salvation? It's living by God's grace. It's praying God's will. It's obeying God's will. Fourth and finally, it's the big one, God the Holy Spirit in us. God the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is the fourth and final and ultimate assurance of our salvation. So middle of verse 24, end of verse 24, John writes this. He says, and the way we know that he remains in us is from the Spirit He has given us. Verse 24 is the first direct mention of the Holy Spirit in the book of 1 John. And this mention is tremendously important. God, the Holy Spirit, is the ultimate source of our assurance that God abides in us, that He remains in us, and we remain in Him. John says that God, the Holy Spirit, is given to us. And when is God, the Holy Spirit, given to the believer? I grew up in a different faith tradition than this one that taught that the Holy Spirit came to the believer at a point other than their salvation. That there was this other anointing, this other moment that had to happen in the believer's life when the Holy Spirit would descend on you. But that just doesn't align with what the Bible teaches, unfortunately. What the Bible teaches us is that God the Holy Spirit is given to you at your salvation. At your conversion, God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. You are saved, justified, 
set on a path of sanctification, and all of that is empowered by God dwelling in you, God the Holy Spirit. So he's the one who sets our hearts at rest when they accuse and condemn us. And he's the one who gives us words to pray. And he's the one who prays for us when we can't pray for ourselves. He's the one who invigorates our continuing faith in Jesus Christ and our love for each other. Have you ever considered how unbelievable it is that God the Father gives you God the Son to die in your place for your sin, and then he gives you God the Holy Spirit to live in you? I love to point out, and I've done so many times, the fact that our God is the God who cannot get close enough to his people. There's this incredible pattern through the Bible. God first dwells with his people in this holy tent that moves with them from place to place. And then he dwells with his people in a holy temple that's built on one piece of property in the holy city. And then he dwells with his people by taking on flesh and living among us and dying for our sins and rising again on the third day. And now, he dwells with his people in his people. Not in a tent, not in a building, not in flesh, in us. God the Holy Spirit dwells in you. You can hardly make sense of that. But it's incredible, God's love for us seen in the gift of God the Holy Spirit. John gives us this beautiful truth that God the, Spirit, God the Holy Spirit reassures us when we, or that we remain in God. Here's the problem, though. John doesn't tell us how the Holy Spirit does this. He just says it's a fact. The Holy Spirit reassures us that He remains in us, we remain in Him. But how does the Holy Spirit do that? That's the question that's left only mildly unanswered by John. I have an idea. I'm not claiming special revelation on this, that I've got, I've got more knowledge than John on this point. But Here's what I know to be true. We find the Holy Spirit's reassuring voice every time we open God's Word. So, for example, we just read verse 24. And by reading verse 24, we learned of the reassurance we have from God the Spirit in us. We learned that, how? By reading God's Word. We didn't learn it by special revelation or some secret knowledge. But when we read God's Word, we find the reassurance of God's Spirit. When we read God's Word, we, we hear His voice. I recently spent time with a dear friend, and he told me of a treasure he found in John chapter 10, verse 4. And that's where Jesus says this. He said, the sheep follow the shepherd because they know his voice. They'll never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. So when we open our Bibles, we hear the voice of our good shepherd. Our ears are trained to his voice. And when a stranger's voice comes accusing, condemning, or tempting, we run back to the voice of our shepherd. That's how God the Holy Spirit reassures us that we abide in him and he abides in us by this given word. So John, in this passage, he has pastored us. Yeah, I was of the impression before we started this study in 1 John that 1 John was a lot more about taking on false teachers. It's a lot more about pastoring, hurting people. He's a pastor, we're his people. And he cares for us this morning 
by reassuring us that we truly belong to God. And we have this assurance from four sources. It's when we live by God's grace, when we pray His will, when we obey His word, and when the Spirit dwells in us. God doesn't intend for us to live in doubt and fear regarding our relationship with Him. That's not how children live with their parents. And that's not how we are to live with God. Do you carry this kind of doubt in you? Is the inner condemning voice louder than the reassuring voice? Did you just sit through this whole sermon thinking, now what a waste of time. Maybe you find yourself just demolished by your sin this morning, or maybe you've given your heart plenty of ammunition to use against you, but know this, you are not lost to your sin. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And and what did Jesus do in his earthly ministry when he came across notorious sinners and broken people? What was his first impulse when he came across tax collectors or prostitutes or lepers? He moved toward them. Compassion flooded his heart. He spent time with them. He touched them. He loved and healed and redeemed them. That's what God does with hurting people. That's what God does with his hurting children. Don't you see that God is greater than your heart? Romans chapter 8 tells us this. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 31, if God's for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Your Savior is your defender. And since we have this great confidence in God, I I want to encourage you to respond maybe in one of three ways this morning. First of all, if, if you lack assurance of your salvation because of sin in your life, then it's time to turn back to Jesus. It's time to listen to the voice of your shepherd and to run away from the voices of strangers. Come to Christ for mercy and for love and for help. And you won't have to convince him. You don't have to bargain with him. You only have to come. This is what he wants for you. Second, if if you lack assurance of your salvation just as a, a regular part of your life, like this is a persistent, nagging, constant fear in your life, then you need to listen to God's promises until you can rest in them. Amplify the voice of God in your life by believing what He said. Get yourself in His Word and eat these words every day to hear the voice of your Father reassure you time and again that you're His child. He abides with you and you abide in Him. Third and finally, with the assurance of God, the Holy Spirit, that you abide in Him and He abides in you, then it's time to live in humble service to the world around us. Assurance with God does not lead to this spiritual arrogance. Rather, it leads to humility and self-sacrifice. It leads to loving in action and in truth. When you reciprocate the divine kindness of God, then the people around us will catch an aroma of heaven. Their ears will be open to the voice of God who's greater in the voice of their hearts. Just a couple of Sundays ago, we read this amazing line in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great 
love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. We are. Let's pray together. Lord God, give mercy this morning to your children who would think that their father has turned from them. Thank you that you have replaced the condemning voice in us with your reassuring voice. You have replaced our messed up hearts with your Holy Spirit. And whether we live in self-condemnation just by default or whether we have provided ample ammunition for that condemnation, regardless of how we get there, God, help us to not take another step in that brokenness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for the salvation you've given us through faith in Christ, a love that we experience and we give to others. Thank you, God the Holy Spirit, for dwelling in us and reassuring our hearts over and over again. So today, take away all fear, all doubt, as we root ourselves in what we know to be true about you. You're greater than our hearts. We praise you for this. God, I pray for my friend that may not know you as their Savior this morning. You've been working in their hearts for some time. You've been chipping away at at the stubbornness, the hardness, the resistance. Lord, this morning, capture them with a vision of your mercy and your goodness and your love. Father, draw them close to you for their salvation today. We love you. What a treasure that we are your children and you are our Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.